Artemis 1 splashes down. What's next for NASA's moonshot? You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Artemis 1 mission splashed down Sunday, ending the 25 and a half day mission around the moon and back. It's a big step in NASA's new moon program, so what's ahead? We'll chat with Washington Post reporter Christian Davenport about the success of the mission and its next steps. Then, the images Orion beam-backed were breathtaking and especially significant to scientists. We'll speak with UCF's Addie Dove about lunar science and how Artemis 1 is helping us learn even more about the moon. Wrapping up NASA's Artemis 1 mission, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. NASA's Orion spacecraft is back on Earth after a 25-day mission around the moon. From Tranquility Base to Taurus Littrow to the tranquil waters of the Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's journey to the moon comes to a close. Orion, back on Earth. It was the end of Orion's journey that took it nearly 270,000 miles from Earth. The $4 billion mission dubbed Artemis 1 comes after years of development and delays for NASA's next chapter in human lunar exploration. The mission carried no crew, but tested important systems of the spacecraft. Here to talk more about the mission and NASA's next steps is Christian Davenport. He's a reporter at the Washington Post and author of the book Space Barons. Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So the the uh, successful return of the Artemis One mission, I mean, this this is a, a huge step for NASA. Just how big of a win is this for the agency? Oh, it's absolutely massive, Brendan. And part of the way you think about it is, um, you know, how bad for NASA it would have been if it went south. If something would have gone wrong, if there would have been some sort of uh, you know, tragedy here, then you would have to think that their moon program would be in serious jeopardy. But instead, we have the opposite. It went uh, flawlessly, at least from everything that we can tell. They are now, after all of these years of delays and setbacks and cost overruns and technical challenges, on a firm footing to return astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972. Um the mission was incredibly successful. It has real political support here in Washington in Congress. I mean, let's remember, this is the first human spaceflight exploration beyond low Earth orbit going to deep space that has survived subsequent political administrations since the Apollo era. Uh, it was started under the Trump administration. It, it has been embraced by the Biden administration. And it's got a lot of momentum, and it's got even more now, Brendan, after this successful Artemis One flight. Mm -hmm. I was going to mention that because you did bring that up in your reporting for the Washington Post, that that this is kind of an, an outlier when it comes to programs because it did survive multiple administrations. I mean, is that kind of one of the main reasons for its success, do you think? And and is that going to give it the momentum that it needs to, to move forward and, and actually put humans on the moon? I think so. I mean, you know, if you look back at the history of space exploration, um, as uh, as one of my space industry, uh, you know, friends and, and colleagues likes to say that, um, you know, failure in getting humans beyond low Earth orbit, uh, it wasn't an option. It was a certainty, right? Because you had 
uh, George W. Bush saying, we're going to go to the moon. You had President Obama come in and said, you know, literally at, at the Kennedy Space Center during 12, 2010, said, you know, we've been to the moon. We've done that. We need to go to an asteroid. We need to go to Mars. And then the Trump administration comes in and changes course once again and says, no, no, we're going back to the moon. And it's almost as if, you know, various political parties and presidential administrations have jerked NASA all across the solar system, giving it, you know, all kinds of different targets. And what it really needed was a continuity, a continuity of purpose. And now it has that. Um, you know, I think it's very smart the way uh, NASA and the political leadership at NASA went about this to build bipartisan support. Um, a lot of that, you know, was the the idea that uh, NASA would send uh, the first woman to the moon. And then the Biden administration talked about sending the first person of color to the moon and created a broad base, um, uh, you know, layer of support there. And now with the Artemis Accords, these are sort of, you know, a, a banding of the international community to create norms of behavior in space. You've got all these different countries now that are invested in the Artemis program as well, which you know gives it momentum, but also makes it harder to kill. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is this this may be a silly question, but I mean, does does this give the lifespan of of the Artemis program? Does it does it extend it? You know, well beyond just the words and rhetoric at this point, because there is a physical mission that has happened. Yeah, I think so. And and you've got you know these these things are funny these moon missions, right? Because even during Apollo, they fade from the public's consciousness, and 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 and, and even you know the consciousness. Of of Congress. But what Apollo did was not just have, you know, a great technical mission, right? The, the space launch system rocket overcame, you know, its early problems and it had a spectacular launch, you know, the heat shield of Orion worked, the parachutes worked, all that is fine and nice. But what resonates, I think, with the public are the images, these photographs that the spacecraft took of you know, the earth hanging in, in, you know, the inky darkness of space, which was reminiscent of the Earthrise photograph uh, from Apollo 8, you know, that as Orion approached the moon and the moon got bigger and bigger and you had this great detailed shots of the moon up close and then the earth behind it in the distance. And then finally, as Orion was coming home and you saw the earth again and it got bigger and bigger, I think those images are going to resonate with the public. Uh, I think that will be printed in history books. And, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but it does seem as if NASA is writing a new chapter here. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the success of the mission? I know leaders and, and even the NASA administrator, you know, called it a mission success, but there's still some data review going. By the accounts we have now, how successful was it from an engineering and technical standpoint? Well, everything appeared to go great, but let's remember, I mean, we, we, you know, there were many times, you know, we were down on the Cape waiting for the SLS rocket to launch. They had a hard time with hydrogen leaks, faulty sensors. They had the scrub twice and they had the hurricane come in. Um, you know, in that sense, it wasn't perfect. But once they finally figured out the fueling, SLS, they said, performed magnificently. Um, the launch was spectacular. Um, everything they said was was great. I mean, there was some damage uh, to the mobile launcher on the pad. And the force of the rocket literally blew the doors off the elevator of the launch tower. Um, but they said that was you know all relatively minor and, and, and could be fixed. The Orion spacecraft uh, seemed to perform very well. 
um, you know, the European service module fired its engines, put it on the, the, the exact course. There were those two um, powered flybys where it whipped around the moon to get in the, into that, um, you know, very distant uh, orbit that it was in. And then to come back home, uh, did a close approach of, of about 80 miles from the surface. And then there, you know, it, so it flew well. And then there's that big question. And you can't help but think like, oh, gosh, there are astronauts on board one day. How are they going to survive the reentry? Uh, it'll be coming in so fast, so hot, uh, nearly 25,000 miles an hour, slamming into the uh, atmosphere of Earth, generating temperatures of some 5,000 degrees. And the heat shield, from what we know, seemed to work very well. They're going to analyze that you know, in the days and weeks to come. Um, but it seemed to perform well, those are the early indications. And of course, those those parachutes, uh, there was a series of 11 different parachutes that, you know, had to work and, and, and they all worked. And you saw it um, sort of floating down gently onto the Pacific. So, um, you know, so far, so good. Um, and, you know, obviously this is a test flight ahead of putting humans on board. But I think right now they've got to feel pretty good about that going into the next flight. Before this flight, the program itself faced criticism and scrutiny from industry experts, even NASA's internal um, inspector general. It's It was delayed. It's massively over budget. Um, and it's still an expensive program. Uh, does 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 this successful mission change that at all? Or are we just in the honeymoon period of, of this mission and, and that scrutiny may come later in, in the in-between now and, and when astronauts launch or when astronauts land on the moon? Yeah, and, and you have to you have to wonder about the sustainability, the long term sustainability of a program that is so expensive. Um, and that I that Inspector General report that that you mentioned, you know, talked about the the launch cost for the first three missions being in, in the range of four billion dollars each. That is, uh, you know, just an an exorbitant price. Uh, the SLS uh, rocket, while it performed very well, does have its critics. You know, it uses uh, you know, its four main engines, the RS-25s, are left left over from the, the space shuttle. It's not reusable, you know, at a time when, uh, you know, SpaceX and others are, are building, you know, reusable rockets that can be flown over and over again and driving down um, the cost. You have to wonder about the long-term sustainability and then what's going to happen as other heavy lift uh, launch vehicles come on the market like SpaceX's uh, Starship, you know, which of course is going to be used to land the astronauts on on the lunar surface, if they can get that up and running, then I think there's going to be some tough decisions uh, in the future. That said, though, I mean NASA is obviously very committed to the SLS. It just solidified um, with Boeing. I think it was a 3.2 billion dollar contract for additional, um, you know, main stages of of the rocket. So they're going down that path. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right to, to raise that question. And, and the other thing, it's not just the price, right? It, it, this next, this Artemis II mission isn't going to come and potentially until late 2024 at the earliest, it seems. And that's a long time in between missions. So you have to wonder if the enthusiasm will indeed fade. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that SpaceX's Starship is being developed for that initial lander. Um, we're all very well aware that SpaceX's founder, Elon Musk, um, has his attention elsewhere with the purchase of Twitter and is receiving criticism for how he's handling that. Is there any concern from, from NASA that um, Elon Musk's 
extracurricular activities outside of SpaceX may have an impact on getting Starship ready and landing those astronauts in as you know 2025. Yeah, well, we know there is concern about that, um, and the reason we know that is the NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Uh, was concerned enough when he saw Gwen Shotwell a week or so ago, and he asked her, uh, hey, um, Elon's spending a lot of time at Twitter. He's taken over this company. Uh, is this going to be a distraction? So he asked her and confronted her point blank. Now, you know, predictably, she said, no, everything's going to be fine. And he seemed uh, content with with that answer. But, you know, it was only a, a year ago, if you remember, when uh, Elon was tweeting about if they weren't able to get Starship up and running uh, and do multiple flights in 2022, he tweeted this in, in November 2021, that the SpaceX you know, was going to run the risk of, of bankruptcy. Now, I don't think anyone ever believed that. I think it was uh, generally seen as a way for him to motivate his team to get Starship up and running. But obviously, it's a very complex vehicle to begin with. They've updated the Raptor engines. Um, they're still going on, you know, a very intense uh, testing campaign down in Boca Chica, Texas. Um, but they haven't done their orbital launch attempt. They still do have to overcome the challenges of launching from a new place and meeting, you know, all of the FAA's regulations. But you would think it's the kind of uh, complex program that would uh, merit Elon's full attention. And as we know right now, it, that program does not have it at the moment. We've been speaking with Christian Davenport. He's a reporter covering NASA and the space industry for The Washington Post. He's also the author of the book, The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos. Christian, always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Still to come, lunar science and what Artemis is teaching us about our moon. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. During its trip around the moon, the Orion spacecraft beamed back incredible images of the moon, our planet, and our place in space. The pictures were stunning, but they also hold scientific significance. Here to talk more about the science captured by the Artemis 1 mission and what scientists plan to learn at the moon, we're joined once again by Addie Dove, a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida. Addie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So the uh, Artemis 1 mission has sent back some stunning images from from both the spacecraft and 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 of the surface of uh, of the moon. As a planetary science scientist, what's been your reaction seeing these kind of images come back? Yeah, they've been absolutely stunning. Uh, I think I didn't really think a lot about how many of these images we'd get and the fact that they had these basically GoPros right on the solar panels that were there to collect data about the spacecraft, but got these stunning images that included the spacecraft and various phases of the Earth and the Moon were just were just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, they definitely did something for for you know drumming up support and 
awe and enthusiasm for this mission. But I mean, is there some scientific (laughs) significance (laughs) to some of these images? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's not going to be, so we have really amazing high resolution images of the moon from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter that's been orbiting the moon for a long time. Um, But these, so like, there's not going to be a lot of huge amounts of science data, like new discoveries about the lunar surface that come out uh, from these images. But I think that um, having the context of, of where Orion was, um, like how close it got to the surface and, and what it looks like from that vantage point, I think has a lot of um, a lot of importance for understanding what these Artemis missions are going to do and what it's going to look like. The mission went around the backside of the moon. That, that's the, we call it the far side of the moon, right? Not the dark side of the moon. Yes. Right. Okay. Correct. Yes. <laughs> you know, you could see it, right? It was illuminated yeah. part of the time, so it's not the dark side. <laughs> um, I mean, what did what did what did we learn from from these images and, and seeing this portion of the moon? I know you mentioned we we've seen some images from the lunar reconnaissance orbit, orbiter, but I mean. This yeah. is going to be a, a fresh perspective yeah. on it, right? Yeah, it's pretty crazy because we, um, for the most part, right, when we look at the moon, we always see the same face. So it's it's called it's tidally locked. And so it always faces the same face toward us here on Earth. So it's really rare that we get a sort of this vantage point of looking at the moon from the far side. Um, and there was some very, very early images when we started sending spacecraft out beyond the moon, the returned images of the far side of the moon. But these are really far out. Um, And so they give us a lot of context for the earth and the moon system. Um, And then they're just like these spectacular images that show the far side. And like you mentioned, right, it's not the dark side, it's the far side. It's illuminated with different lighting conditions that are maybe different than we've seen before. Um, So I think that it'll give us some interesting data to look at in terms of like what we're thinking about and where we're going on the lunar surface. Before we get to the lunar surface exploration, let's talk a bit about the conditions that Orion may have experienced in that lunar orbit there. Um, I know radiation is one thing that um, engineers and scientists were studying inside the capsule, but what is the environment like around the moon? What what kind of things did Orion have to deal with? And, and will Orion have to protect astronauts from uh, on Artemis II? Yeah, so when we think about living here on Earth, we're protected with our atmosphere, right? Protects us from different types of radiation, but also we have this magnetic field around the Earth that provides additional protection. It's not just the atmosphere. Um, And so when we do these really big lunar orbits, and I say big because it went really far out, um, we get information or we're getting information about how the spacecraft behaves and what the internal environment will be in places where you're out beyond the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. You also cross sort of in and out of what's called the magneto tail. So like when a boat is driving in water, right, there's a wake behind it that sort of is broad at the area of the boat and then tapers off toward the back. That's a classic um, sort of uh, structure that you get in the waves, right? The same thing happens when any planetary body, the Earth, the Moon, is traveling through what's called the solar wind, so charged particles that are streaming from the sun. Um, There's all this interesting structure that happens um, like back behind the Earth, and sometimes the Moon is within sort of the protective region of the Earth's magnetic field, and sometimes it goes through more complicated regions, sometimes it's outside of it. So uh, that's a long-winded explanation, but there's a lot of really complex magnetic and charged particle environments. And so, and we just haven't dealt with that a lot um, since uh, 
the Apollo, right? So the, the ISS is in a relatively safe space in orbit and pretty low in orbit around the Earth. Um, so we haven't dealt with protecting our astronauts from radiation and all these charged particles in a long time. And then as Artemis 3 looks to land on the moon, there's going to be a, a completely different set of, of environmental conditions it's going to have to deal with, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but but just remind me again of, of the region these Artemis missions are targeting to land, um, their significance to, to science exploration, and just how harsh of an environment are, are these astronauts and this hardware walking into uh, on Artemis 3 and beyond? Yeah, so Artemis 3 is planning on landing in the south polar region of the moon. So it'll be on the near side, so where we can still have um, like line of sight communication, but um, in the south polar region. So most of all of the Apollo missions were sort of more equatorial. They were sort of in the middle, right, on the surface. But um, we think that there's a lot of potential for setting up a base on the south pole because we think it has resources. So potentially it has things like water ice that we're really interested in. Um, but also because it has these really interesting regions that have permanent uh, that are permanently illuminated by the sun because of the way um, the moon uh, orbits and the, and the moon faces the sun. There are some areas that are like pretty much always in sunshine, and they're right next to some areas that are down in a crater, for instance, that are always in shadow. So there's really interesting um, potential for like setting up solar panels and setting a base in an area where you have this um, always where you're always illuminated. Um, and then you're right next to, like I said, these permanently shadowed regions where we think that there are potentially ice and other resources. Um, the, the, the environment the astronauts are going to be in there is actually not um, drastically different than it is when they're orbiting the moon because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere. So you actually get these really complex charging environments and then um, high energy radiation environments on the surface of the moon, just like you would get on orbit. Um, and again, because of like being at the South Pole, uh, the, it's like a little bit different than it was at the um, equator. Um, and we're still trying to understand how that's going to affect some of our systems. Mm -hmm. And and there's the moon dust, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I know that we've talked about this before. And I've got to say, um, Addie, I've been watching a lot of of video from the Apollo 17 missions yeah. uh, because it's the 50th anniversary of that uh, mm -hmm. with fresh eyes. Because when I, when I used to look at that, you see these, you know, these two astronauts jumping around the surface and kicking up this <laughs> dust. And you think it's kind of like this, like beachy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this, this soft sand. Um, but after chatting with you all these years, I realized that it's <laughs> actually not. <laughs> so tell yeah. me a bit about how, how that like very sharp, almost glass-like sand on the surface that that they were kicking around mm -hmm. is going to be difficult for astronauts to work with and, and things that engineers need to think about when developing hardware to get onto the surface of the moon. Sure. Yeah. I'm glad you asked me about this because you can't have me on and talk about the moon without talking about dust. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> We have to talk about dust. It's um, in your contract, I think, I right? Think so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the, the lunar surface is covered in dust or regolith, which is just like really jagged, broken up bits of rock. And it's not like sand because there's not waves and wind to sort of round it and make it um, smoother, right? Um, so it is this really jagged and really complex particles. Um and so, yeah, when you watch the Apollo astronauts, you're like, oh, look at them. They're having so much fun. But then if you look at like their suits when they came back, um, they're just absolutely covered in dust. And like we, people have been able to study some of that dust because they can like still scrape it out of those suits. Um, although apparently they like dry clean some of them. So not all of it's still there. 
Um, but, uh, but it's really complex and it's hard. Like if, if you think about getting sand, like in, I don't know, your, your beach towel, right? If there's like surfaces, porous surfaces, it's really hard to get it out of there. Um, and it's even worse for dust. Um, and so it's a big challenge uh, when we're thinking about astronauts in their spacesuits, but also even just like rovers driving around. If you watched um, some of the Apollo videos, right, where they're driving around in their buggy, it kicks up a bunch of dust, right? Um, so anything sort of moving around on the surface has the potential to sort of get mechanical jamming if you're getting dust in different systems. And we talked about the, the charged particle environment on the moon. Well, that dust, because it's exposed to this plasma environment from the sun or these charged particles, it also gets charged. Um, and so that presents a whole separate set of issues to deal with when you're thinking about um, how to uh, how it gets on surfaces, but also how to get it off of surfaces. And the apparent success of of Artemis One, I mean this this is a big step forward in NASA's human lunar exploration ambitions. But robotic scientific exploration is pressing on as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the really exciting scientific things that are on the horizon when it comes to the Moon, and just how quickly these missions may may leave the ground? Sure, um, I how quickly they may may leave the ground. I can tell you. Uh... <laughs> estimated dates right um i think so yeah so artemis is the is the human side of things and it's it's really exciting like just how well this mission seems to have gone is actually really remarkable right this is we haven't done this in a really long time and it would seemed to go really smoothly um from takeoff to landing right um to splashdown and so it's it's just been really remarkable to see just how smoothly that's gone um and but, and we have to wait probably another couple of years until we see Artemis II. But in the meantime, we hope that there's going to start, we are going to start um, this robotic exploration. And so this is with commercial landers that are going to put payloads down on the surface of the moon that are science payloads, but also these are commercial companies. So they're sending um, people's names and ashes and things like that as like tourist things, right? So but these science missions are going to be trying to understand the lunar surface and they're going to be going to places that we haven't gone before. So some of them are going to the South Pole to hopefully get some context and, and understand that environment a little bit before we go there with Artemis 3. Um, and then some of them are uh, going to be going to other interesting places on the moon, like the Grusheisen domes, which I'm pronouncing incorrectly, but, um, and, <laughs> and other regions that are just really interesting, uh, regions on the moon that tell us about the moon and how it formed and evolved, because that can help us understand how the earth formed and evolved. So there's a lot of these different small landers, um, some little rovers that are going to be doing really interesting lunar science that helps us not only do just science, but also will help us prepare a little bit for the human exploration aspects. Mm -hmm. Lots of science stuff in the works, which means I will be calling on you to uh, tell us all about it in the coming years. Uh, Addie Dove is a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida. Thanks for joining us once again, Addie. Thanks for talking to me. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners, and we are in our year-end fun drive. So if you'd like to make a contribution to shows just like this, visit WMFE.org and hit the red donate button at the top of the page. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.